Revolutionary Talk for Revolutionary Times. Promoting peace, liberty, and prosperity around the clock. LibertyTalk.fm. Welcome to Medicine on Call. This is Dr. Elena George, um, where living in the solution is the motto of our show, and it's all about educating our patients and doctors about our healthcare system. Today, I'm having actually a friend, an old friend, um, and somebody that I respect highly who wrote uh, a paper, a working paper, on the national single-payer healthcare system and the cost of it. His name is Charles Blahouse, and he's a fellow at the Mercatus Center at the George Mason University. And we're seeing a lot of things, Charles, about the single-payer system. It is one of the major tenants in the in the healthcare debate right now, but I'm not sure people really know a lot about it. I have seen it firsthand. My dad is from the West Indies, and I've seen the national health system work there, and I wasn't very happy with it. And I'm not sure what's going to happen here, but I wanted to get your take because it's something that's important and that people have an understanding about. But before we get started, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? How did you come to the healthcare space and, and working for Mercatus? Wow. Well, I um, first of all, thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to the discussion. And uh, as for the healthcare space, um, I probably came to it through uh, my work on Social Security and my work on federal mandatory spending programs in general. I uh, spent several years working on uh, Capitol Hill, worked in the Senate uh, for several years as Senate staff, did a lot of work on Social Security policy, uh, wrote a book on Social Security policy, um, and uh, during the, the Bush White House years, uh, I, I was very deep into um, uh, that side of the federal budget. Uh, that ultimately led to my being appointed by President Obama to be a trustee for the uh, Social Security and Medicare trust funds. And it was in the context of that work that I started writing more frequently and in greater detail about sort of the financial aspects of uh, Medicare specifically, uh, part and parcel of my responsibility as being a, a public trustee. Uh, I tried to stay, and, I, and I've still tried to stay, uh, out of the impassioned debates over health care policy. Uh, I felt that during the time I was working as a trustee, it would uh, be better to just sort of keep my nose clean with respect to those debates. Uh, and so I tended to focus on the, on the underlying financials. And uh, I've written a number of studies over the years about the fiscal impact of various healthcare policy um, proposals and legislation. And when uh, the Medicare for All uh, idea began to gain traction a couple of years ago, uh, it, it just struck me that no one had done a cost estimate for the specific Medicare for All bill that had been introduced in uh, the Senate and, and later in the House. And so it was really sort of from the from the budgetary side of things that I started to gravitate into the uh, healthcare space. Well, you've gotten a, you had a front row or have had a front row on the entire structure. And you know, I don't want to digress, but I'm curious about the tenant that I've I've heard about that. In order to, you have to keep part of your Medicare in order to access your Social Security benefits. I just want to digress for a second. Is that actually correct? Uh, I'm sorry. Could you explain that question again? When when people have Medicare, they have they cannot get rid of their Part B um, Medicare coverage. They have they can't let it go. Otherwise, they also will give up their Social Security benefits as well. Is that true? Do you know anything about that? That does not, that does not sound right to me. Part B is, is supposed to be voluntary, and you should be able to uh, not enroll in Part B and still collect uh, Social Security. Okay. So that's, that's interesting. Okay. And Part A, is, is that the one that's mandatory? Well, Part A, right. Part A, uh, right. Part A is operated much more like Social Security. Part A, like Social Security, is uh, financed with payroll tax and uh, you basically become eligible for benefits at a certain age. And, right, you, that's, that's a different um, – that's not a voluntary program. That's a program everyone is, is thrust into, just like the Social Security. Uh, it's, the, uh, it's Part B uh, and, and Part D uh, that has some voluntary aspects to it. Got you. Well, I'm glad to clarify that. Uh, so the, what, do you have any idea when they 
started the talk about single payer, about Medicare for all? I mean, it's been bandied around for a while, but who started it? Wow. It's, it certainly has been bandied around for a long while. And like I said, I, I was not really a participant in the healthcare policy mm-hmm. debates um, going back several years. Obviously, there was some discussion of systems like that back when uh, the Affordable Care Act was being debated. Uh, I, I think President Obama then was, was trying to find something of a middle ground between where uh, you know people who were right of center were, but also uh, between where uh, people who were left of him uh, who wanted more of a single-payer type system or, or a public option within the Affordable Care Act. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there, there was some discussion of it at that time, but it was not really then in the mainstream of uh, sort of Democratic Party uh, policy thinking and certainly not Republican Party policy thinking. So it was it was kind of on the edges back then, and it, and it got uh, more of a boost during uh, 2016 with the, uh, the, the Sanders campaign for president. And at that time, um, there were a couple of attempts to flesh out the costs and implications of it, but uh, people were talking about it basically as a conceptual outline, uh, and there, there weren't really enough details to get a handle on what would be involved. And, and some uh, experts at various think tanks, uh, they took a real good shot at it, but they had to make a, a number of speculative guesses as to what would be involved because uh, the details really hadn't been spelled out. And then it was uh, not until 2017 that we started to see uh, more instances of, of people introducing specific legislation to implement the idea. Uh, the bill that I scored was introduced by Senator Sanders in the Senate in September 2017. Uh, later on, there was uh, an analogous bill, not exactly the same, but uh, analogous to it uh, introduced in the House uh, with a number of co-sponsors. So. I can't tell you when the debate really began. Obviously, it's something that people have talked about conceptually for, for decades. Um, there's, in fact, there was a CBO report back in the early 90s where they attempted to uh, score the single-payer idea. And certainly even back in the, the debate over um, President Clinton's health care reform initiative in the early 90s, there were, there were discussions of this idea. So that, mm-hmm. that debate goes back decades, but it really didn't start uh, getting rolling in a serious way, I wouldn't say, until the last uh, three, four years. Well, you know what strikes me about this, um, this proposal is how much it costs. I mean, you've in your white paper, you talk about it becoming – upwards of 12.7% of the GDP by 2031. How on earth can the cost, in in your opinion, what are the drivers of this single-payer system just continuing to cost more and more money? Yeah, that's a great question. And if I could try to break that down, uh, first caveat I would would, uh, give is that these are not even the total cost estimates. These are actually the incremental costs. Mm. So these would be the addition to federal expenditures above and beyond what we are currently paying or what the federal government is already projected to pay on health care entitlements uh, and health care programs. Uh, the total cost of, of the Medicare for All program would be uh, in excess of 20% of GDP by the end of its first 10 years. And uh, depending on um, the assumptions and depending on the time frame, uh, we're looking at an addition to uh, federal expenditures of, like you said, somewhere between 12.7% of GDP and uh, more. It could be 14.7 or 15.1, depending on the assumption. So that's that's the first point. The second point is that the 12.7% of GDP estimate, or the estimate of uh, the one estimate of my study that's getting the most press and attention, is uh, 32.6 trillion dollars over 10 years. That's a lower bound estimate. That's that's the that's the estimate that results if you make every possible favorable assumption about holding down drug prices, holding down administrative costs, uh, and greatly reducing payments to providers, uh, hospitals, physicians, other healthcare providers, relative to what they're being paid by private insurance. So that's, as daunting as that set of numbers is, it's actually a lower bound estimate relative to what is more likely to transpire. Uh, but the, 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 the more direct answer to your question is, um, the biggest contributor to the cost is simply that the federal government would be assuming the costs that we are already uh, uh, distributing throughout the rest of our economy. 
so basically, you know, we pay for healthcare in a lot of different ways. So we pay out of pocket, we pay through private health insurance, we pay through state programs and, you know, all sorts of different ways. So the biggest share of the cost is simply the federal government taking all of that on. Uh, that's enormous. And, and um, obviously, um, we have knocked down, drag out fights politically over changes of about one or two percent of GDP in federal government spending or revenues. Uh, and this is several orders of magnitude larger, and not orders of magnitude, but several times larger than that. And it's not something that we've ever really considered before. Um, that's the biggest reason. The, the second biggest reason is that the nature of the single-payer health care proposals uh, themselves would uh, contribute to additional uh, demand for health care services. Uh, there, there's a well-established phenomenon in the health economics literature that's unsurprising, which is basically the more of people's um, healthcare services that are financed through insurance, the more they tend to consume. And that's unsurprising. Um, you know, if you have a health insurance and it covers certain benefits, you're going to want to take advantage of that and, mm -hmm. and use the benefits that you're already paying for in some sense. Uh, whereas if you have to pay for something out of pocket, you think twice about whether you want to spend the money on it. So there, there tends to be a, a very substantial increase in the amount of demand for health services and the amount of health service utilization. And when you have a program like this that is promising first-dollar coverage, uh, these these proposals, there would be no deductibles, there would be no co-pays, everything would be paid right from the very first dollar, and additional benefits would be added that current Medicare doesn't provide, things like you know, hearing and, and vision and dental, things like that. Uh, all of that would be covered from the first dollar. So, and again, the, the health literature indicates that it's not just necessary and effective and desirable services that are utilized more. It's basically all sorts of services across the board, uh, both both the effective and the less effective, both the efficient and the less efficient. So you would have a very substantial increase in the demand for healthcare services. The biggest increase would obviously be with the currently uninsured. Um, and you know, for the most part, I think people would say it's a good thing that they would have access to more services, but nevertheless, that would be an increase in uh, the total amount of uh, utilization and the total amount of cost. But it wouldn't just be for the uninsured. It would basically be for um, those of us who have private insurance now, uh, those of us who are on Medicare but don't have Medigap insurance, uh, basically anyone now who's dealing with copays or deductibles or anything like that, uh, once we are liberated from that, we are likely to demand more health care services. And so that's a big cost driver here as well. So the biggest reason is the federal government just taking over the spending that we're doing in other ways. And the second biggest reason is uh, the nature of the, of the first dollar coverage. Wow, that's a lot of money. And I understand, too, and correct me if I'm wrong, is this also going to extend to people who are non-citizens? Any resident of the country is, is going to be allowed to access this system. Is that also correct? That is actually correct. There's language in the bill, at least the bill that I scored, basically saying, yes, any resident. Um, there's, uh, so it's not, right, it's not necessarily confined to um, um, U.S. citizens per se. It's it's basically anyone who's who's a resident. So it's a it's a, it's a very large group of people. Oh my goodness! I have to digest this. Let's take a break. You're listening to Medicine on Call. Are you having problems with persistent bad breath, constant throat clearing, hoarseness, a cough that won't go away? a sore throat, or a feeling that something's always stuck in your throat, why not find out what the problem is so it can be fixed? At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking time to work with our patients as a team to get to the root of the problem. Make an appointment today to see why Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. Call 404-591-9100 or visit us at peachtreeentcenter.com. Welcome back to Medicine on Call. We're speaking with Mr. Charles Blahaus. Um, he is a, a fellow at the Mercatus uh, Center for George Mason University, and he wrote an extremely important white paper, working paper, on the cost of national health care single-payer system. Before the break, we were really teasing out exactly what the costs were going to be. And 
part of things that you said, Charles, was that they were going to lower the amount of reimbursements for healthcare practitioners. And in your paper, you say it's about 40%. Now, I can foresee as an independent doctor that it's already bad. People are already not taking Medicare because of all the regulations. There's going to be another drain of physicians leaving the the um, the pool of doctors who take Medicare. Is that also scored? I mean, in terms of, or just in general, you looked at everything with that with the thought that that might not change. Because I see access being a problem with this. Yeah, this is a this is a really important issue, and it's a highly controversial one. So I, I want to try to make sure I speak as precisely as I can. Um, the the forty percent number is um, it's it, there is there is uh, about a 40% differential between the rates that private health insurance pays providers and what Medicare pays them. And the Medicare for All legislation would basically cut reimbursements to providers down to Medicare rates. Now, the precise percentage depends on the type of provider. There are different payment schedules under law um, for Medicare, you know, hospitals under Medicare, physicians under Medicare, et cetera. Uh, but basically, the, the size of that cut relative to private insurance rates would be a little over 40% for hospitals uh, and becoming a little bit more severe over time. Uh, and for physicians, it starts out a little bit less, but it gets deeper over time. Uh, it starts out around 30%. Uh, but it's about 42% within the first 10 years and becomes a bigger uh, cut after that. And, again, this, these are relative uh, cuts. These are relative to uh, projected uh, reimbursements under private health insurance. Now, um, very importantly, we don't know what would happen if we cut reimbursements to providers to this extent. As, as you noted, there are already some providers who don't take Medicare or Medicaid for this reason. And under the figures from the Medicare Actuary's Office, uh, they, they project that by, say, next year, roughly 80% of hospitals will be losing money uh, on their care for Medicare patients. So, so basically, under the Medicare Actuary's projections, you would, you would create a situation where in the first year of implementation, about 80% of hospitals would be thrown into negative facility margins, be thrown into deficit, um, because basically they would be reimbursed for everybody at the lower Medicare payment rates um, that currently they, they aren't able to uh, uh, recover their costs of providing services uh, with. Now, we don't know what would happen if that went through. Mm. We uh, we know for the reasons I described earlier that Medicare for All will be a very substantial increase in demand for services. So it's about 11% uh, on a national basis relative to current projections, about 11% increase in demand. And then at the same time, we'd be dramatically and immediately cutting payments to providers. We don't know how providers would react to that. We don't know. Uh, I certainly don't know, but I don't, I don't think anyone really does. Um, whether they would all stay in business, whether any of them would fold up shop. We don't know if there would be uh, restrictions on timeliness of access to services. We just don't know. And um, during the 2016 campaign, when other uh, experts and other think tanks were examining this issue, they didn't think that cuts down to those rates were feasible. And so they assumed somewhat higher reimbursement rates for physicians and hospitals and the like. Now, what ultimately happened was the bill was introduced, and the bill did indicate that providers be paid at Medicare rates. So when I was scoring the legislation, um, I didn't feel that I had the latitude to say, well, here's what I think the provider reimbursement rates will wind up being. I just had to score the bill as was. And the bill said, we're going to cut everyone down to Medicare payment rates. Mm -hmm. So I, I scored it that way. Uh, and I flagged the issue saying we don't know what would happen. And I also provided another score showing what would happen if we didn't have the dramatic provider cuts uh, of this magnitude. Um, but um, that $32.6 trillion estimate assumes that those very severe um, provider cuts are immediately implemented. If they were not implemented for whatever reason, uh, then the, the total cost of the legislation would be substantially higher. Wow. 
Well, from a physician standpoint, the person who would be affected by, or the group that will be affected by this, it'll be a, a drain of, for if there's any independent doctors taking Medicare and Medicaid now, especially Medicare, they would immediately stop. And the hospitals, I can imagine, first of all, there are not many rural hospitals left, but they're going to drive them into becoming bigger and less access for people who are on the fringe and, and in rural areas. And I don't think anybody knows this from a policy standpoint, but the reimbursement that the commercial insurance companies pay doctors is based on a Medicare scale. So it's usually about 80% of Medicare. And you're lucky if you get over 100% of Medicare, um, but usually it's, it's a fraction of Medicare. That's going to have an amazingly chilling effect on any healthcare provider, unless, I mean, that's independent, unless they are employed by hospitals. But then I can foresee a ripple effect where they're going to start letting doctors go and go for the cheaper iteration of the healthcare delivery system, physician assistants, nurse practitioners, and it's going to be pretty much a disaster from a healthcare delivery standpoint. Yeah, and I, I have to say it's it's extremely important to hear that kind of information. One of the one of the things that has struck me in um, in the wake of my study being released is how little I have heard detailing those sorts of real-world experiences and real-world effects because, obviously, there's a lot of people who are invested in this debate either on the pro side or the con side. Mm -hmm. And so um, when I flagged the payment cut issue, um, a lot of um, single-payer proponents have basically said, well, you know, we don't think the provider cuts would really be that serious because, after all, these wouldn't actually be cuts in Medicare rates, since Medicare is already paying these rates. They wouldn't be cuts necessarily in Medicaid rates. It actually, actually, physicians under Medicaid would actually get a temporary increase, although eventually they would actually get a pretty substantial cut as well. Um, but but they, many of them, many of the proponents have, have um, downplayed the uh, severity of these of these cuts that I had outlined in in my paper, and I have just been incredibly curious as to um, you know what we can learn from the experiences of hospitals and physicians as to what this would really mean for them. I mean, I'm just looking at the numbers, and I have numbers uh, in front of me from the Medicare actuary saying Medicare reimbursement rates are 11 percent lower mm -hmm. than hospitals' costs of providing services. Mm -hmm. And, okay, well, I, those are the numbers in front of me, but I don't have the real-world experience to know exactly what that would mean if we then cut payments down to that level for everybody. And it, it just seems incredibly useful to me that we should hear from practitioners, uh, physicians and hospitals and the like, as to what exactly the implications would be for their ability to uh, function and provide services if the legislation um, went through as drafted. Oh, that's I – mean, you just answered a question for me, actually, because I always wondered how do they come up with this when they don't actually ask physicians, practicing physicians, that is, what's it like on the front line? Nobody ever asks us. We're the, the last people to get our voices out there. That's why you don't know this. And the doctors who work for hospitals and the hospitals themselves actually don't have a real cost structure. The cost in those hospitals is artificially raised with facility fees and all sorts of stuff. So that 11% decrease is not such a big deal for them if they would get rid of their facility charges and their, you know, their artificially inflated fees. That wouldn't be a problem. But for people like myself and other doctors who own their own practices, we don't have facility fees. We don't mark up our prices. It's real for us, and it's actually been below the cost of doing business for at least 15 years. When I opened my practice in 2001, I was paid a certain amount by Medicare, Medicaid, and the commercial insurances. Every year since I opened my practice, Charlie, every year, my reimbursements have dropped. I actually had to do locum tenens. I've had to think outside the box. I've actually had to stop seeing Medicaid, Medicare, stop doing certain procedures because they would bankrupt me. So it has had a, a huge effect on the practice of medicine Scope of practice has changed. Physician assistants and nurse practitioners have grown as a, a frontline treatment option because you have to do volume in order to make up the money to see to keep your practice open. 
And then there's been a drain from doctors. 60% of us used to be independent. We're now down to 30% because the cost of doing business is so crazy. You actually have to run to get a paycheck. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out of pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. That's what happens based on the reimbursement scale. Imagine if you do it 40% lower. I mean, it's like medical limbo. I don't think we're going to be able to go any lower without completely disrupting the system. Yeah, and I would just I would make a couple of points in response to that. I think all of that information is incredibly useful, and it, it touches upon several things I heard in the aftermath of doing this study. And you, know, you made a reference early on to. Um, the, the confusion as to what hospitals' costs actually are, mm-hmm. and I have to confess, when I was doing this study, uh, you know, it, it's really difficult to get a sense of um, what their real costs are versus what are, you know, as, as you illustrated, you know, sort of inflated costs or, you know, uh, generated costs. Uh, I, I found it was very difficult to make sense of um, – you know what their what their true cost of providing the services were, mm-hmm. and um, not obviously it didn't have the ability to sort of settle those issues analytically in the context of this paper. So I, I was very careful to use language in the paper like you know, reported costs or what was reported here, what was reported there, sure. um, because obviously there's a there's a point below which I can't personally go in and say okay this is what the real cost was or, mm-hmm. or this is the minimum amount it cost them to provide the service. Um, but the other the other point you made about Physician payment schedules. Um, again, this is this is a pressure point even before we start talking about Medicare for all, and this is another important point not to be missed in the cost estimates, which is that there is a very aggressive schedule of physician payment reductions in law now uh, under Medicare. Um, the, the macro, which was uh, the law passed in 2015 replaced the previous physician payment formula called the sustainable growth rate formula, which every year kept getting overridden because lawmakers were not willing to subject physicians to cuts of that severity that that, that law would have demanded. So they kept overriding it, and then they ultimately replaced it with this, this new payment schedule. But this new payment schedule also envisions a very dramatic cuts going forward. We don't know whether those cuts are going to be implemented with or without Medicare for all. So if Congress comes back in the future and overrides them and feels they have to pay physicians at a higher level, mm-hmm. uh, obviously that would increase the costs of you know, Medicare for all, but it would also increase the costs of um, current Medicare. So um, again, we, we just don't know whether uh, some of these payment schedules are are tenable going forward, given uh, physicians and other providers' costs of doing business. But, but what you said, let me make sure I'm, I'm clear. Once this, if it ever gets passed, those cuts would go into effect immediately, correct? There's no um, moratorium or honeymoon period before they actually enact them. Am I correct? That's right. There's no, well, there's, there's no phase-in period in the sense that when Medicare for all is fully effective, um, which would be there is a sort of a four-year 
transition period for the bill. But but the, the first year the Medicare for All is fully effective, the, the full effect of those Medicare payment cuts would be in effect. It's not like the very gradual mm-hmm. payment changes that were made under the Affordable Care Act for um, Medicare other providers. Uh, those, on the average, were about you know 1% per year. They, they add up a lot over time, but they're very gradual. Uh, if if we were to imagine similarly gradual payment cuts under Medicare for all, the costs will be much, much higher. My, my study assumes full efficacy in the very first year that the plan is fully effective. Mm-hmm. Wow. And it's like a... It's like a ship, you know, once you start moving it in one direction and these practices start closing because they can't pay make payroll, they're not opening if they actually reverse it and, and reestablish the cost structure. It's something that they really need to think about, I think, very carefully because once someone goes out of business, they're not coming back. Or once, right. you know, that this is a, it's a dramatic potentially a dramatic change in healthcare delivery altogether. Um, another thing I wanted to ask you, and I'm, I'm sorry, did I cut you off? Did you want to say something else? Well, I was just uh, very briefly, and I, I'm, I know I'm talking too long. No, no, you're things, doing but, great. But, but these are such important issues, and I, I try to be clear with people that I don't have the answers on these issues, and I'm not really saying it should be this way, it should be that way, or here's here's what I think payment rates should be, or or anything of the sort. What I am trying to do is say here are the here are the potential implications and how the cost estimates change depending on what happens. And again, I have no particular personal view as to what reimbursement rates ought to be or what's sustainable, but I do feel an obligation to point out that the cost estimates in my study assume a very, very dramatic payment reduction right out of the gate, and that if we don't implement that for whatever reason, the total cost of this uh, of this uh, bill will be much, much higher. Yeah, it's like whack-a-mole. <laughs> I mean, basically, if you do one thing, there's a pressure on the other end, and um, it's part of the problem from, a again, from a, a nuts and bolts perspective is that Nobody really, and you said at the beginning of of our show today, they don't know what they don't know, which is what happens on the front line. It sounds great on paper, but these are real real people. So just to paint a scenario, you actually have this macro MIPS and this capitation plan where the hospitals get, accountable care organizations get a certain amount of money in this pot. And what we're seeing is that doctors are being paid to not deliver care, and that's how they're keeping the cost down. You actually get points for not using the system for your patients. So if you have a sick patient, you are a lot of tests, you're actually being dinged. And this is actually, in, another, in, in my opinion, a way of rationing care. And it may be unintentional, but the sicker you are, the less likely you are to get everything that you need done because it's costing the system. And I can imagine if this Medicare for All comes into play, the pressure to really be very, very strict, very austere, is only going to get worse. Yeah, and I think this this cuts to a general point I often make about federal lawmaking and federal policymaking. And this, you know, this just reflects my perspective as someone who, who worked as Senate staff for 11 years and White House staff for another eight, uh, which is that it's impossible to precisely predict what will be the real-world consequences of the laws that we pass. And even the smartest, most well-intended people in the world, um, after they get together and make all the compromises that have to be made back and forth in order to enact something in the law... um, you know, aren't able to successfully anticipate and solve every problem. Um, and and because of that, it really suggests that we need to have a, a, a tremendous amount, and I think probably more than we show, humility when it comes to legislating. Mm-hmm. Because um, you, you want to make sure that if you make the inevitable mistake or, or fail to anticipate something, that the stakes are small enough so that you can correct it or adjust for it without enormous damage. And the, the bigger and more ambitious the legislation, um, the greater the consequences if you get something wrong. And uh, I just, just to give you an example, with, with the Affordable Care Act, 
you know, there were, there were a lot of uh, initial projections that were made for the effects of that law that just turned out to be quite wrong. Uh, they were made in good faith, and they were made by the best in the business, uh, but they still couldn't accurately project what was going to happen. So we, we had a certain um, level of, uh, of participation projected by the Congressional Budget Office for participation in health exchanges, for how many people would wind up uh, uh, signing up or being signed up for Medicaid, how many states would uh, you know, expand Medicaid once the Supreme Court made that voluntary. Um, and all those projections wound up being um, – off, as is inevitably the case, but sometimes in highly consequential ways. So with the uh, health insurance exchanges, um, the uh, well, we wound up with a lot higher participation in Medicaid than was anticipated and a lot lower participation in the exchanges than was anticipated. Uh, and uh, some other things proved to be very different from initial projections. The per capita cost of the Medicaid expansion population was was much, much higher than originally projected. And the uh, participation rate by unsubsidized people who were who were not in the very low income categories who would have benefited um, greatly from the uh, subsidies to participate in the exchanges, they generally weren't participating. So you had a, a, a different population, a sicker population, a poorer population participating in these exchanges than was originally projected. And so, you know, a lot of these exchange plans had, had a lot of difficulty um, staying afloat. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, the, the, you know, there's a lot of finger pointing that goes on about this. You know, when, when things don't go quite right, um, people want to blame this person or that person or this party or that party. But the, but the reality is that we can never get everything right. So um, with something like Medicare for All, we're, we'd be playing with very, very big stakes. Uh, there are some things we would get wrong. And, um, again, even I think the smartest, most well-informed person in the world would be very hard-pressed to say how the how healthcare providers, physicians, hospitals, and others would respond and adapt to the new world. And, and we need to be pretty humble in, um, in, in saying what we think would happen because none of us really know. On that note, let's take a break. You're listening to Medicine on Call. If you've tried taking over-the-counter medications, but still have problems with nasal congestion, recurrent sinus infections, sinus headaches, or a dry mouth when you wake up in the morning, why not fix the problem? From natural integrative treatment to minimally invasive surgery, Peachtree ENT Center will work with you to find the solution that works best for you. Call 404-591-9100 today to make an appointment or visit us at PeachtreeENTCenter.com because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. Welcome back to Medicine on Call. We're speaking with Mr. Charles Blauhaus. He's the J. Fish and Lillian F. Smith Chair and Senior Research Strategist at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. And we're speaking about healthcare policy and the fact that it's really hard to to make policy and legislation and and, and make everybody happy. I think that you, you put it, you know, it's a hard job, I, I think, that what, what you guys try to do is to project what what a future is going to be. And, you know, maybe one of the things that would help is if people who legislate think about the market and about economics, the hospitals are there to make money. They're going to make sure that their labor force is as cost-effective as possible. And if the doctors who have been the engine for, for um, hospital revenue through coding and through procedures, et cetera, are going to get a ding in how much money they're going to bring into the hospital, then the, I think the pressure is going to be to have the cheaper labor force available. You know, So I think hiring physician assistants and nurse practitioners as the front line, having doctors as administrators, outsourcing them or getting rid of them being members of staff, and then have them come in to do contract work would probably be the way I think hospitals will probably handle this. 
So all the hospital doctors who sold their practices have nowhere to go because they can't afford to open up. I mean, this is just, (laughs) I can just foresee kind of a disaster. And actually, I have another question for you about the actual law. Is it also true that within it, that they, it's illegal, it will become illegal for commercial insurances to duplicate the coverage or what the service is covered by the Medicare for All um, guidelines. So basically, right. the, the, that's a problem. The, the federally provided uh, single-payer health insurance program would be the only game in town mm-hmm. uh, providing those benefits. So, so basically, uh, it would wipe out um, private health insurance uh, for all that coverage. Um, there's actually, it's funny, there's an interesting provision in the bill that would provide uh, sort of job training and assistance and other um, help to displaced workers, people who used to work in, in private health insurance administration <laughs> who wouldn't have their jobs anymore uh, as a result of the legislation. One of the uh, one of the things, and I, I actually think there's some, some um, uh, um, credence to this, which is that, you know, if we did have a national health insurance system, we might be able to lower um, health insurance administrative costs uh, pretty substantially relative to what we have now. Uh, and we, we, do a pretty, we do a pretty nasty health insurance <laughs> administration cost now, that's for sure. Uh, we might be able to lower them. But on the other hand, um, we would spend some of that savings because of the politics and political dynamics of, um, of uh, Medicare for all. So, for example, yes, we would save money in, in, in administrative costs, but then we would also set up a job program to take, take care of the <laughs> health insurance administrators who lost their jobs. So the, the net uh, effect of the savings isn't as great as people uh, might assume. So what happens to programs like Medicare Advantage? Will there be insurance companies, or one, maybe two, administering that part? I mean, will people be able to buy kind of a uh, extension for things that Medicare doesn't cover, and that would be administered by the insurance company? There, there would be some allowance for uh, supplemental, um, you know, insurance benefits above and beyond what this uh, basic program provides, but. I think in, in practical effect, it would it would essentially wipe out uh, a lot of what is now Medicare Advantage because um, you know this this uh, program would basically provide um, first dollar coverage for a, a lot of the benefits that people are now getting under Medicare Advantage. Uh, so um, it, it would it would displace a lot of it. I see. And in terms of um, well. It would be from cradle to grave, right? So from the time you're born to the time that you would technically be a Medicare age, everybody's under this umbrella, right? There's nothing, like, different. That's right. And and it's actually an important point because despite the name of Medicare for all, uh, it's not really much like current Medicare. Well, I mean, it has some similarities to current Medicare, but it definitely isn't current Medicare. It, it's an entirely new program. And uh, seniors would be moved into it along with everybody else. Mm-hmm. And so the, the Medicare program that seniors know, the one that where, where they're paying the you know the deductibles and the copays, and they have the choice of Medicare Advantage plans and all of that, um, all of that is replaced by this new program. Now, you could say in some respects that's a good thing for seniors because this new program would be substantially more generous. Uh, and what it would provide. It would provide first-dollar coverage. It would provide dental. It would provide hearing. It would provide vision. I mean, it's definitely a more generous program, mm-hmm. um, but it's it's a different program, <laughs> and, it's, and it's definitely not Medicare. Uh, it, it's really a, a single-payer health insurance system that has been given the name of Medicare for All um, because of the, of the uh, attractiveness of that slogan. Got you. Or the unattractiveness of single-payer. Right, right. So what happens to Medicaid then? I mean, do the states still run that, or is this going to be the umbrella that does everything? Uh, This would, well, this would take as well. The one exception would be long-term care. There had been, uh, in the original Sanders outline in 2016, there had been um, some discussion of uh, wrapping a long-term care benefit into this. But I was not put to the the text of the bill as it was introduced. And instead, basically, they they created a a sort of a maintenance of effort requirement for states to continue 
to provide uh, benefits, long-term care benefits through the Medicaid program. Basically, Medicaid would be sort of scaled back to be a state-run long-term care program, basically. Hmm. Um, and, and the rest of Medicaid's current functions uh, would be uh, wrapped into this new single-payer health insurance system. But you would still actually, in your payroll taxes, have to pay both then, Medicare and Medicaid still, correct? Well, I, honestly, the financing is is clear. <laughs> the financing is not clear at all. There is um, there is a, uh, a, a sort of a four-year phasing period during which time um, people could buy into this sort of Medicare-ish type of program. Actually, they could really buy into what is more like current Medicare for that period while this other program is standing up. And during that time, they would be assessed uh, premiums uh, for that bond. The bill itself is very silent on what happens once this new program is up. We don't know whether it be financed with payroll taxes. We don't know whether it be financed with, with premiums or with income taxes or, oh. or what. There, there have been a lot of ideas that have been thrown around. Uh, none of them are nearly sufficient to finance the cost of the legislation. So as of now, we simply don't know how it would be financed. Oh, my gosh. I thought that that was kind of... I mean, the way you what you said in the initial paragraph is that even if you doubled everybody's taxes, payroll, corporate, uh, private, and then took the 40% cut, it still wouldn't cover it. So they really have no clue. This sounds like you have to pass it to find out what's in it again. <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's true. I mean, I, I think this is actually a very important point, I don't, and I don't mean to make light of it. I, I uh, you know, again, I, I try very hard to stay out of the the debate, the subjective value judgment to say what's good and put this cost assessment out there to take sides in the policy argument over single payer. But um, there have been times when um, some of the arguments that have been made for uh, the system or dismissing the costs of it mm-hmm. have not um, resonated with me. And and one of them is this, this notion that, oh, well, um, we're already paying for all this nationally we're already paying for health care in other ways uh who cares what the federal costs are uh, if nationally we our costs are basically the same or maybe if we cut providers enough we might even lower national health spending isn't that what really matters and i just don't think that's a persuasive pitch because irrespective of whether we are already paying for most of the spending in other ways as soon as the federal government takes on the spending obligations, the federal government has to figure out how to finance it. And we, you know, we have no reason to believe the federal government would be able to adequately. And if they did, it seems well. And first of all, it seems very, very unlikely the federal government would do anything uh, so harsh as to slap, say, a you know, a ten thousand dollar per head tax on every man, woman, and child in America to finance this. Um, which means they would probably turn to some other means of doing it in a more progressive fashion, you know, maybe hike, you know, raise taxes more on the rich, raise taxes more in capital gains, raise mm-hmm. taxes more in estate taxes or whatever. But but whatever the government would choose to do to try to come up with 33 or $38 trillion over 10 years is going to have enormous economic distortion effects mm-hmm. uh, relative to what we're doing now. So it's not just a matter of saying, hey, we're putting, taking money from, you know, one person's writing a check and now a different person is going to write the mm-hmm. check. Um, however it is financed is going to have uh, enormous ec- economic consequences, uh, negative ones relative to what we're currently doing. It's, so it's, it's, it's not just a, a trivial event when you put this on the federal ledger from an economic perspective. Not at all, and especially when you described how oh, this is the lower end of your estimate and you can't tell us if it's going to be higher. There's so many variables right. in here that it could just break the bank on the first year, and then what do you do? I mean, isn't Medicare already going bankrupt You know, in the, in the next several years? Without anything well, else? Yeah, there's, 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 uh, this is a, another really important point. We, we have no idea how the government is going to uh, meet its currently scheduled obligations, let alone something like this. So mm-hmm. with Medicare, Medicare has two trust funds. Uh, there is the HI hospital insurance trust fund. That's what people think of as Part A. And then there's the supplementary medical insurance trust fund, which is Parts B and Parts D, basically. Um, the Part A trust fund is only scheduled uh, under current projections to be solvent through 2026. That, that's 
eight years. We, we've not figured out how we're going to solve that problem. And, you know, that, that is a pittance uh, compared to the cost of, say, Medicare for all. And then um, the other part of Medicare, supplementary medical insurance, that program, that trust fund is run differently. It's, it's statutorily designed so that it cannot go insolvent. It's basically just given whatever revenues it needs mm-hmm. from the general fund uh, to keep going. It gets about three-quarters of its money from the general fund, and then the other quarter is from, from premiums, uh, and those are automatically adjusted to keep the program going. So that program doesn't go insolvent. But its costs are growing much, much faster than uh, federal income is. So we haven't figured out how we're going to finance that either. Um, the, the projections for the current federal budget are growing more and more daunting. Deficits are, are very much out of control. We, we don't have a plan for dealing with them. Uh, and that's, that's taking on anything close to the magnitude of something like Medicare for All. Wow. You know, Charlie, we're coming to the end of the show. It was just... Uh, an eye-opening experience for me. I'm so happy that I, I found you and you were able to come on the show. I mean, you're a wealth of knowledge, and, and it's all about the facts. No passion, no drama. Just let lay it out there and let people come to their own decision so they can, you know, you, you can't decide anything if you don't understand it. And I think you did a wonderful job of explaining how this process works. I learned a great deal, and I'm really, I just thank you for everything that you do, and thank you for actually caring. I really appreciate that. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. It's wonderful to reconnect with you, and I greatly appreciate the opportunity. Is there, if there's a way for people to follow your writings, how would they be able to do that? Um, I would say go to the Mercatus website, uh, mercatus.org, and just look for my name, Charles Blahaus, B-L-A-H-O-U-S, and I'm, I'm there, and all my papers are there. Oh, it's wonderful. I hope you can come back at some point if, God forbid, this thing passes. But if there's any tweaks to it, I mean, I would love to know um, if there's any changes, and honestly, if you ever need a, a physician, a, a real-world voice, please don't hesitate to let me know because I'd be happy to give my little two cents on this. <laughs> that would be great. I'd, I'd love it. Great. Thank you very much for coming on, and thank you for listening to Medicine on Call. From treatment of sinusitis to balloon dilation to minimally invasive office procedures to correct snoring, Peachtree ENT Center offers state-of-the-art care. We also specialize in price transparency. You'll know the cost of our ENT services before they're rendered, whether you have a high deductible plan or no insurance at all. Make an appointment today to find out why Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. Call 404-591-9100 or visit us at peachtreeentcenter.com. Are you having problems with persistent bad breath, constant throat clearing, hoarseness, a cough that won't go away, a sore throat, or a feeling that something's always stuck in your throat? Why not find out what the problem is so it can be fixed? At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking time to work with our patients as a team to get to the root of the problem. Make an appointment today to see why Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. Call 404-591-9100 or visit us at peachtreeentcenter.com. Revolutionary talk for revolutionary times. Promoting peace, liberty, and prosperity around the clock. LibertyTalk.fm.